Good morning. I think I already said that to y'all once, but I'll say it again. Uh, I'm not above that. Um, hey, so we're going to continue in First John this morning, um, and I want to just kind of start off by sharing a couple of personal experiences uh, that I think will help us relate to the passage fairly well um, this morning. And so um, I'm thinking of a couple of specific people in my life as I'm thinking about this passage, and one of them was a teacher that I had in high school. Um, it was a teacher that I had at North County that has, well, was an older gentleman that had probably been married for 40 or 50 years. And while this particular person, and Caden, you probably already know who I'm talking about, or you'll figure it out pretty quick, I'm telling you. Um, this person was generally supposed to be teaching history um, most of the time. Um, but I found that most, a, a lot of what he did, he somehow always interjected these comments talking about how much he loved his wife. It was interesting to me. He talked about it often, even though it was a history class. Um, you know, his marriage wasn't history, it was current, all right? Um, and yet he talked about her all the time. He would talk about what's going on in her life. He would talk about how much he loved her. He would talk about, you know, if he had to leave early that day because he had to go and, and take her to a doctor's appointment or something like that because she was dealing with cancer at the time. And he constantly, you could, just, you could see it, how much he loved his wife. You could just see it. And then the other example I'm thinking of is my grandpa. And so um, I'm not exactly sure how long ago it was, about four years ago maybe. Uh, I was talking with my dad about it yesterday and still can't remember the date. might have been 2017 in the summer. Um, we were on a mission trip, and, um, and my wife calls, and she's like, hey, uh, Grandma passed away. I just wanted you to know. It's like, all right. Um, there was more to it than that, but I'm going to give you the, that's the Cliff Notes version, all right? And, um, and so what I, what I remember most is during the last year or two of my, my grandma's life, um, because of all the health issues she had, she had moved into um, an assisted living facility. Grandpa was still living at home, and he would get up in the morning. He would, you know, go and exercise, he would eat, and, and then he would go straight to the assisted living facility and spend the day with Grandma, all day, every day. She couldn't talk very much. She couldn't say a whole lot. She couldn't do a whole lot. But he was there. And he would sit there next to her. He would hold her hand. He would do whatever he could to help. And I sit there and I think about these two men specifically. And I think it was really obvious the love they had for their wives. It was obvious. You could see it. You could see it in their actions. You could see it in and hear it in what they said, and just the way they spoke about them, you could hear it, you could see it, it was blatantly obvious. This morning in this passage, and and Dave alluded to one of the verses earlier, we're going to look at some signs that God's love abides in us. Should it be obvious to other people that the love of God is living inside of us? The way that it's obvious that these men have loved their wives based on the way they act and the things they say. Because I can tell you, if I just walk up here and tell you I love my wife, but then in my interactions with her, none of y'all ever see that, that's a problem. Do you agree with that? I think I would have a pretty poor marriage at that point. There's something to it that people should be able to see, our love. And so we're going to look at, at a passage here in chapter 3 of First John, looking at it. And so I want to first connect for us the, the definition of what it means to, uh, of what abiding love is. And so I got to speak several weeks ago and we talked about the word abiding. And so abiding is to remain, all right? 
It's to remain. And um, what that means um, uh, is, is it's a word that requires constant action. All right? And so it's a love, abiding love is a love that requires constant action. All right? And it's found in Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, so I want to read with you 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. So if you've got your Bibles, go there. Uh, if not, it'll be up on the screen, all right? Uh, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for your word. I pray that um, you would take this time and use it for your purpose, for your glory. God, that you'd continue to remind us that, Lord, all scripture is profitable. God, for teaching and equipping God, ultimately for making us more like you, God. So I pray that that's the result of our time. Speak through me, and um, God, use your spirit to deliver the messages needed. In your name I pray, amen. And so um, Louis last week talked about, opened chapter 3, had covered, or sorry, second uh, or third even sermon in chapter 3, but hit the first five verses of this, uh, 11 through 15, and maybe even hit 16 a little bit, talking about loving uh, the family of God, loving one another. And so while this um, passage is still along that line, it's referring to loving within the body of Christ, I think there's a lot of things we can take from it that help us love outside the body of Christ as well, okay? And so I want to give that little bit of info before we get started. And so I'm just going to dive right in. Here's sign number one, y'all. There's several signs present in here of the way people can know that God's love abides in us. And here's the first one, is we show compassionate action on behalf of those in need. Um, and let me just tell you, there's a reason that verse 16 accompanies this part in 17 about how when we see somebody in need, we should be all about that and about helping and serving them. There's a reason 16's in there, it's because Jesus gives us the ultimate example of that. Jesus dying on the cross, him laying down his life for us, is the ultimate act of compassionate action on behalf of people that have a need. You know why? Because you and I have that need, just like every other person that's ever lived, that need for salvation. And he gave us that. And so he shows this compassionate action. And so we can understand what that looks like whenever we've experienced it through a relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus pays this price. Jesus gives us what we need. He meets our spiritual need through salvation. But if you look throughout the Gospels and you study the life of Christ, you met a lot of needs for a lot of people during his time. It wasn't just a spiritual need, although that was the main purpose for which he came. Okay? You think about feeding the 5,000, right? 
multiple times, feeding large groups of people. He met a physical need. You think about all the times that he healed somebody from whatever it was they had going on. He met a physical need. He was, he was about those things. Multiple times as Jesus enters a city, what does it say? It says he sees the people, or he enters a group. He sees the people, and he has compassion on them. That was Jesus, the one we're supposed to be imitating, right? And so he lived with compassion, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like he saw it, and he saw the need and was like, you know what? I'm going to really hope that somebody else takes care of that. Aren't you glad he didn't look at us with our need for salvation and say, man, I really hope that somebody else will take care of that? Because I tell you what, when we see the needs of people sometimes, that sometimes is our reaction. We think somebody will take care of it so we don't worry about it and we leave it alone. Man, I'm glad Jesus didn't do that when he said, those people need me. Those people need salvation. Those people need a relationship with God. I can do something about it, but I'm going to choose not to. I'm glad that wasn't his response. I don't know about y'all, but that's where I'm at. And so he gives us this example of how we should meet other people's needs. And yet, what this verse gives us is it gives us a two-part thing. It's not just the action. It talks about the motive and the action. And if you look in verse 18, the one that Dave had up earlier, it's what it says. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so the deed is the action part. The truth is our heart and our motive behind it. And so what was Jesus' motive for doing all of these things, for meeting the needs of his people? His motive was love. His motive was the fact that he loves you, that he loves me, that he loves everybody that's ever lived and ever done anything wrong. That was his motive. His motive was love. And so we got to take a look at that for ourselves sometimes. What, what is the motivation, right? His motivation was love. If you think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, all right, Jesus gives them an example of someone helping meet the needs of somebody else with compassionate action. This man sees a need, he meets it. Why did Jesus have to give that parable? Because people were trying to justify who in the world they were called to love. It was a result of that. They were like, well, who's my neighbor? Who in the world do I have to show this kind of love to? And in, in short, the summary, Jesus' answer is everybody. That was the summary. Everybody. You're called to do it sacrificially. You're called to do it by taking action, not watching somebody in need and letting them be. That's not what we're called to do. And so Jesus lays down his life, talks about it in verse 16. And here's what he's saying. He says, for the Jew, I love you. I'm going to die for you. For the Greek, for the Gentile, I love you. I'm going to die for you. For the Samaritan, I love you. I'm going to die for you. For the woman, I love you. I'm going to die for you. For the children, I'm going to love you. I'm going to die for you. Do you see the trend? This is what he did. For the sinner, for the tax collector, because you know they group those together. For the fraud, for the thieves on the cross, I love you and I'm going to die for you. For Barabbas himself, who was a murderer that he took his place for, I love you and I'm going to die for you. For the high priests that were after him his whole ministry, always trying to catch him doing something wrong because they were jealous. I love you. I'm going to die for you. You see that? He didn't put a restriction on who it was. He said, none of y'all are worthy. I'm going to do it for all y'all. It was huge. That's how, that's how he did it. And why did he do it? Because his love motivated him to. In Mark 10, 45, it says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And most of us will never in our lifetime, most of us, all right, 
We'll probably never be asked to give our life on behalf of somebody else. That's not something that many of us will deal with. And that's why 17 and 18 is here. Because it's saying, hey, this is the ultimate. You need to be willing to go this far to give your life as God gave his. But there's a lot of practical daily application to this that you can see in 17 and 18 to meet much smaller needs that don't require giving your life. And that's what he's getting after. And so it reminds us that there's practical daily ways to serve. And there's a little bit of a process, and you can kind of see it through. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And so this little process kind of, realistically, it starts with seeing the need, which I think is an issue in and of itself at times. And the word for see here is more than just a glance, all right? It's not like, oh, that caught my eye. I'm just going to keep going. It's more than a quick glance. It's like a contemplative look. It's like, I'm really paying attention to this. I'm focusing in on it. I see it. And then the second part of this is, do I have the needs and the ability to meet this need? And so then you sit and you contemplate it and you think about it. And you know what? If I have the needs and then I look at this and I say, I close my heart against him. There's a question of whether or not God's love is abiding. There's a question there. It's more than just a quick glance. When we have the world's goods, we have the means to meet that need. In James 4, 17, I feel like I quote this verse almost every time I get up here, and I don't know why, but I love this verse, so I'm going to say it again, all right? In James 4, 17, if we, if we know what we should do and choose not to do it, to him it is what? Sin. You know you should help somebody. You know you should be moved with compassion and love, just like Jesus was moved with compassion and love, to action and to do something. And you know you should, and you choose not to. It is sin. That hurts for some of us. That hurts for me, because I know I do that sometimes. And that's what it's called out to be. We shouldn't leave it to question whether the love of God abides in us. We shouldn't leave it to question. We should be people that... Show compassion and action towards one another. James 2, 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There's this idea here that just to, to say, man, I, I'm really, I hope something good happens for you but then to ignore it. That's that part in verse 19. Let us not love in word or in talk. It's like, word and talk is important, don't get me wrong, but if that's the only thing you do, that ain't it. You're missing the mark if that's all you're going to do. If I say, man, I'm so sorry that you're dealing with this situation. I really hope that things work out for you, but there's something I can do to help and I choose not to. I'm living in word, but not in deed and in truth. It's incomplete. That love for others is incomplete if that's all that we do. In John 15, 13, it reminds us that the greatest example of love is laying down your life for a friend. In other words, it's willingly giving everything you have on behalf of another. Because words without action, as 1 Corinthians 13 puts it, is like a noisy gong. You make a lot of racket, but it ain't helping. Matter of fact, it probably gives people a headache makes people think a little bit differently of you 
and of your relationship with Christ. And so we're called to compassionate action for people in need when we see it. But we have to be careful because there's a, there's a risk here. We talk about how we love people and how we love everybody. It's got to be more personal than that. It has to be more personal because if we look at it, then we're in danger of, of this, all right? And this is a quote. I don't remember who it's from. It's not from me, but take it with as you wish. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. When we just say we love people and we group it as this giant group, then we don't pick anybody specifically to model that love to and to show that love to and to help somebody specific. Then we've got a problem. It's got to be personal. All right? Then person in need is personal. The command to compassionate action is personal. For some of us, we'll look at the things that our church does, right? We'll say, hey, we've got lifelines. We've got food pantry. We've got these things. We are doing that. We're meeting the needs. You know what? That's true. The church as a whole is doing things to meet the needs of people. But what are we doing as individuals to meet the needs of people? And that's what we're called to do as evidenced by this passage, all right? Um, it's not just this big act of sacrificial love that's mentioned in verse 16 that we ought to lay down our lives it's more like the countless little acts of love that we can do on a daily basis. Those are the ones that most of us are going to have the most opportunity for. That's the one we're going to have most opportunity for. And so uh, when we choose not to, like verse 17 alludes to, we choose not to, then we're, we're basically showing one of the characteristics of a false teacher. Because the false teachers of that time uh, showed a lack of love for other people. As a matter of fact, in 1 John 2, we alluded to it uh, and talked about it a little bit several weeks ago, that there's this idea of being a child of God or a child of the devil, and one of the, the marks of being a child of the devil is indifference towards the needs of others, is being indifferent. And so it sends a completely other, a, complete, a message that's completely opposite for what we would want to when we choose to ignore those things. Compassionate action, it's a sign of God's love abiding in us requires a pure motive, a love for God and people, and intentional, deliberate, sacrificial action. That's what it requires on our behalf. Here's number two. Uh, the second sign is a confident approach in prayer. Um, and this one is a little different because there's some, there's some disagreement among how to interpret these verses, okay? And so I want to give you guys kind of the, the, the options that I've seen that people have laid out um, and kind of give you uh, the, the reason why I would, would, would take it as one over the other. All right? And so I want to read these verses here, 19 through 22. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So there's a couple of different takes, okay? Uh, specifically about the phrase, God is greater than our heart. And so there's a couple of different takes that people have of what that means. There are some that think, um, when it's talking about the heart condemning us and it says God is greater, that they're saying that God's condemnation of us is greater than our heart's condemnation of us. That's what some say. And then there's the other side that it's saying, 
when your heart condemns you, God is greater because God's grace is greater than your sin. God's love is greater. God's forgiveness is greater. I tend to lean more towards that second interpretation because Romans 8.1 says that within Christ there is no condemnation. And so I tend to lean towards the second that it's referring to how God's grace is greater than our sin. And so the second part that people conflict over is this idea in, uh, in verse 20 about what the heart's condemning us for. Is it just sin in general or is it the thing that it talks about in verse 17 where we're not showing love for one another? Which is it? And I got to say, I'm not real sure, but I think it applies both ways. Um, so I'm just going to be honest with you about that. I think it applies both ways, all right? And so what this passage gives us is it gives us a couple of different ways to approach God, and then after that it gives uh, how God responds to our prayers. And so one way that we approach God is in times of self-condemnation, all right? And we have to approach God in these times because honestly, our hearts, um, if we're in Christ, that self-condemnation means we feel some guilt. We feel um, something inside when we've sinned that we, is, is telling us, hey, you messed up. And so when that happens, I would suggest it's actually a good thing. Because if your sin doesn't bother you, and you're never convicted about it, I think that's an issue. And so I think it's actually a good thing to have a little bit of self-condemnation. But what the devil does, because the devil uh, likes to get a foothold, and as Jeremiah 17, 9 says, it says the heart is deceitful. And so what it'll do is it'll be more than just that little bit of guilt. It'll start putting other doubts and other thoughts in your head if we let that self-condemnation get too far. It'll tell us, you're not enough. God doesn't love you. All of these different types of lies that it's going to whisper in your ear. And yes, by the way, you're not enough isn't a lie. It's true, we're not. But he is, and that's why it's amazing. Okay? He'll start whispering these lies that God doesn't love you. He wouldn't do that for you. He doesn't care about you. He'll start telling us all of these things. And that self-condemnation goes from I'm convicted of sin to now I'm questioning absolutely who God is. I'm questioning everything. And it gets deeper. And I understand that biblically speaking, yes, Christians as a whole, I bet every person in this room could say they've had a doubt about God in some way, shape, or form during their time as a believer. Uh, I, I would venture to say that's probably true. And yet here in this situation, it's saying when that happens, when you're in self-condemnation, be reminded. Not only is God greater, but it said God knows everything. And the reason that's in there is because, yes, he knows your sin, but he also knows your heart. So him knowing everything means he knows your heart. He knows that, you know what, you slipped up. He knows that you love him. And so we have reassurance here when we approach him in prayer that even whenever we're coming to him in a sinful state, and we've got something heavy weighing on us, that we can look at him and say, your grace is greater than that. Your forgiveness, your blood covers that. It's taken care of. And not only that, you know my heart. If you remember, Jesus, after the resurrection, he talks to Peter and he asks him what? Three times. He says, Jesus, or he, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And every time, Peter says, you know that I love you. See, he knew Peter's heart. He knew Peter messed up, but he knew Peter's heart, just like he knows yours. And he knows mine. And so in these times of self-condemnation, we have assurance in God's forgiveness when we abide in him. 
the second part of this, the flip side. Sometimes we can approach with more of a clear conscience. We don't have anything specific that we've been convicted of, that we've been condemning ourselves over, um, and we can approach the Father in confidence. That's the other alternative in that, all right? Sometimes we can approach the Father in confidence, and that's in verse 21. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And the term confidence means boldness. And here's the picture, all right? This approach of coming boldly uh, before the Father and being confident is like the picture of a, a little child running to their dad. It's a picture of a little child that knows the dad loves him, that is just running to him, knowing dad's going to catch him when I try to jump up into his arms. It's that visual and that image. We have that kind of confidence that he's not going to let us go. See, it's a, it portrays an intimate relational encounter with the Heavenly Father. That's what it portrays. And so when I say confidence, it's not a confidence that you have in the form of arrogance or pride because it's not anything that you did. Uh, it's a confidence that Jesus knows your heart. It's a confidence that you're in sync with his thoughts. And it's a confidence in God to be true to his word and a trust that he can and will answer prayer. And so this confidence that we have when we approach him with a clear conscience provides us with motivation and assurance as we come to God in prayer. See, we can't, we can't approach him because we've done something meritorious, because we've done something with merit, but because Calvary took care of the sin. That's why we can approach him. It's for that reason and that reason alone. So as we continue through these verses, I know what you're thinking. It says when we approach him with confidence, whatever we ask, we receive from him. That sounds great. Finish the verse. <laughs> whatever we ask, we receive from him. That sounds wonderful because that means you can ask for whatever you want, right? Hold on a second. What's the back half of that say in verse 22? Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Interesting. So God responds to our prayers when we do a couple things. When we keep his commandments and whenever we do what pleases him. Those are the two things that are our qualifications here for God giving us what we ask for him. And here's the kicker with this. When we keep his commandments, when we do what pleases him, what that tells us is that when we're seeking to please him, it means we're seeking his will. Thus, the things that we go before God and ask him in prayer are going to be more likely to receive that answer because we're seeking his will above our own, because we're seeking to please him and not to please ourselves. In Galatians 1.10 and 1 Thessalonians 2.4, it speaks to the idea of pleasing God. See, there's, there's, there's scriptures that talk about, are we, are we doing this for God or are we doing this for man? And even here in prayer, he responds when we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. We can't come to God in prayer, present our requests, living a life for ourselves. Seeking to please ourselves. Seeking to please man and expect to get the answers that we want from God. That's not how prayer works. And yet I think we try that often. I think we try, maybe subconsciously, maybe intentionally, we, we just pray for what we want to please our hearts. But sometimes our hearts aren't in line with what God's heart is. And whenever we do that, that prayer isn't going to be answered the way that you thought. 
It's going to come back a little bit void. All right? It's going to come back in a little bit different response than you were hoping for. Spurgeon put it this way. He who has a clear conscience comes to God with confidence. And that confidence of faith ensures to him the answer of his prayer. Childlike confidence makes us pray as no one else can. The man of obedience is the man whom God will hear. Because his obedient heart leads him to pray humbly and with submission. For he feels it to be his highest desire that the Lord's will should be done. The man of obedience is the man whom God will hear because his obedient heart leads him to pray humbly and with submission. Because he values the Lord's will above all else. See, Jesus shows us what that looks like in the garden. You guys remember this? So he goes, he's getting ready to go to the cross and he goes and speaks to the Father in prayer. God, if there's another way, he's speaking as, as we would, right? Because we don't like when bad things happen, right? So he's speaking like, God, if there is another way, please take it. Let there be another way. But if there's not your will and your will, I will abide by it. I will go with it. I will do whatever you say. Sometimes we leave that last part out of our prayer. I'm guilty. And that's one of the reasons I can speak to it. I'm guilty. See, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father because he understood two things. He, he understood that the Father knows best and that the Father knows all. See, God has a big picture view of things when we approach him in prayer, and we have a very small, narrow picture view because we can't see everything that God can see. And so our approach is a little different. But he responds when we keep his commands and when we do the things that please him. 1 John 5, 14, which we'll get to several weeks down the line, tells us if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so part of our keeping his commandments and doing what pleases him is seeking his will and not ours. And let's just be real. We don't keep his commands and we don't seek to please him all the time. And so because of that, our prayers won't be answered as we wish all the time. It's that simple. Every prayer we make, not every prayer we make is rooted in God's will. And as a result of keeping his commands, doing what he pleases, our will becomes his. And so it's a sign of God's abiding love when we can approach him with confidence because of who he is. And he answers our prayers as we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Sign number three dives right into that because in, in verse 22 it says we keep his commands. Verse 22 says, 23 says, here's the commands. <laughs> and this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he commanded us. And so there's two parts to this as well. The first part of this commandment is to believe in the name of Jesus. All right, And it's not simply believing that Jesus lived. That's not what this whole thing entails. It entails way more than that. It's more than just, I believe Jesus lived, I believe Jesus died, I believe Jesus wrote again. It's more than that. It's believing everything that Scripture says about who Jesus is. Everything. To believe in the name of Jesus is to place your trust, your faith in him and only him. And not only that, but in all that he is. The divine son, the incarnate deity, the sinless human, the perfect atonement for our sins, the Savior, and all other facets of his unique nature and personhood. 
See, believing in the name of Jesus is believing in him in his entirety. Everything he is, everything he does, everything he encompasses. We trust in the biblical Christ, or no Christ at all. In verse 16 and 18, it speaks of helping others, like we talked about at the beginning. See, living lives of helping others and living good moral lives is wonderful, but it isn't what God asks for. See, this behavior, apart from a belief in the name of Jesus, is just being moral. Apart from a belief in Jesus, loving others by meeting their needs is just being moral. It doesn't have its root here. But what God does is he asks for belief in Jesus, and then helping those in need becomes something we want to do. It becomes something that we're commanded to do. It becomes something that is ingrained in our heart that Jesus did so much for me, I would love to do some things for other people. It changes who we are. So belief in Jesus is what saves us. It changes how we live and who we live for. It changes those two things. The second aspect of this commandment is that we love one another. This doesn't come across as anything new to most of us, but it is a good reminder and verses 16 through 18 give us a good idea of what that looks like. John 13, 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. By this, everyone will know. That's the sign of God's abiding love in you, that you love one another. John 15, verses 12 and 17 tell us that we're called to love one another. And so over and over again, that command is given. These two commands, to believe in Christ and love one another, are basically kind of a test. There's a doctrinal test to believe in Jesus and a moral test, an act of love. And so not only has God commanded us to love one another, but verse 16 reminds us of how he demonstrated it for us. See, he didn't do anything that he, he, he didn't ask us to do something that he wouldn't do. He's not asking us to give our life for somebody when he wouldn't do it himself. He did. So he sets the example. He sets that bar. And that's what we're called to do. Uh, Warren Wearsby put it like this. He said, faith toward God and love towards man sum up a Christian's obligations. Christianity is faith which worketh by love. Christianity is faith which works by love. Those are the two things that we're commanded to do. And so when we're being obedient to God, when we are seeking him out, when we are trying to show a consistent effort to obey his commands, these are the things we're doing. We're keeping Jesus' name at the forefront. We're believing in everything that he is, and we're loving one another in a way that is something you don't see in this world outside of Jesus himself living here in human form. So right belief and right action reveal the authenticity of our faith, and they show and reveal that God's love abides in us. See, it's not enough to just say you love Jesus. It's not enough. It's not enough to, to be word only, as verse 18 tells us. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We got to be a people of action. Not only that, we got to be a people that do it out of a heart that loves others because we were loved first. So we're going to close. Um,
as we do, I want to give you a few questions to ponder. Um, it's a good passage for us to reflect on. I'm going to give you a few questions. Uh, we're going to sing a song of reflection together, uh, and then we're going to uh, go to the Lord's table for communion after that, all right? So, a few questions. Does the love of God abide in you? Take a look at these things. Does the love of God abide in you? Have you professed belief in Jesus and all that he is? Do you show compassionate action toward the needy? When you pray, do your requests stem from a heart that seeks to please Jesus? And are you seeking to constantly try to live in obedience? Let's pray together. God, thank you this morning for your love. God, thank you that you do give us the example of what we should follow. That not only do you ask us to love one another and to to follow you. But God, you did it yourself. Lord, thank you for laying down your life for us, God, as that was the greatest act of love that we could ever imagine. God, just allow us, God, both now and in the future, God, to be moved by your Spirit to do exactly what you've called us to do and and to be who you've called us to be. Allow us to see the needs and the hurt in others and be a people that seeks to help. God, allow us to be people that desire your will above our own, even though it's not easy at times. And God, allow us to daily make a concerted effort to follow you in every path and every direction you would have us go. Lord, just speak to us at this time. In your name I pray, amen.